help of man is useless. Isn't that true? <laughs> Amen. It don't mean that we don't look for man to help, but we must not put our full trust in the help of man because the help of man is ultimately uh, disappointing. It is. We will let each other down because we are sinners. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we first of all thank you for this Lord's day. We thank you, Lord, that you are the, the great and mighty God, that you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, I come to you this morning with the heart of gratitude, a heart of appreciation just for who you are. You are the God who supplies our need. You are the God who sits high but looks low. You look at us, Father, and, and you pity us. And we thank you for that, Lord, because you could be a distant, far-off God that doesn't care about man. But, Lord, we thank you and praise you this morning that as the one true God, we can go to you just as I'm able to go to you right now and pray to you. Father, I, I thank you for that, that you are a personal God, that you are the God who hears the prayers of your people. And, Lord, I ask you this morning as I pray this prayer to hear my prayer according to Christ and his finished work on the cross and according to your great mercy and grace. Lord, I pray for our nation. And I pray for all the nations of the world that are cascading deeply and deeper into moral decay. But Lord, particularly our nation with all the legislations that are taking place, all that is coming down from the uh, White House, all the sinful legislation and sinful proposals that are being set before the people of our nation that reject uh, sanity, <laughs> frankly, that reject your created order, that reject you as God. Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for their repentance. We pray for a turning away from rebellion to a turning to you. That is my prayer this morning for our nation, for our leaders. Lord, that you may convict them of their, of their sins. And that you send good gospel preachers their way to proclaim Christ to them that they may be convicted of their sins and repent and turn and believe in the living Christ because, Father, one day they will have to stand before your judgment seat and give an account for the evil that they have unleashed in this nation. Lord, we pray for our state leaders, the same thing. Our local leaders also. Lord, that by your grace and by your power, 
that the gospel may proliferate in our culture, that souls may be converted, that hell may be depopulated. Because, Lord, there is a true spiritual battle going on. We don't talk about that enough in our churches. But there is real evil in the world. There are evil people in this world who wish to do harm to the truth, who wish to do harm to uh, faithful Christians, who wish to do harm to the church. Father, we pray for those people who have those evil schemes. We pray for their souls. We pray for their repentance. And Lord, we pray for the church, the church universal, and even for our church. We pray, Lord, for the true church to continue to uh, proliferate, to continue to boldly proclaim your truth in the midst of whatever persecution we may face, that we continue to proclaim the truth in the midst of a culture that preaches materialism and self-love and bodily autonomy. Lord, may the true church rise and preach and proclaim your truth. And may we not bow the knee. May we not capitulate to the culture and to the demands of the culture to compromise. May we not compromise in one single point at one single area. Lord, you call preachers everywhere as Paul told Timothy, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with great patience and instruction. And Paul told Timothy that because he goes on to say that the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their own ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will heap upon themselves teachers that they want to hear, that will scratch them where they itch. And Lord Paul told him, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And Lord, do we see that today in our culture and unfortunately in so-called churches where people have turned aside from the truth, turned their ears away from the truth and turned, uh, turned rather to lies, to myths, to insanity. But Lord, we're praying for the true church, the true preachers, for, for true elders to preach the word, to rebuke, to reprove, and to exhort with great patience and instruction. And Lord, that you may use that word, that truth, to turn hearts back to you having itching ears. And Lord, that is a damning statement that people that sit in our churches have itching ears. They only want preachers to preach what makes them feel good and what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to call to repent and turn away from their sins and, and turn to the living God who will one day judge the world. But rather, Lord, they want to hear TED Talks and motivational speeches 
and calls to love yourself and be your best self and live your best life and 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 is your body and your choice and and that is okay to sin against God because God is is cool and God understands but Lord those are lies give us men who will preach the word give us churches that are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul proclaimed and may this church the living church continue to be that kind of church also Lord continue to give me the boldness to preach the word to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction and Lord may our members not have a desire to have their ears tickled may our members not turn their ears away from the truth Continue to give our church, our church members, including myself, a longing for your truth. A longing to hear your truth, Lord. And with that hearing, a longing to live your truth. May you continue to fill our church with those kind of people. And also our sister churches, Lord. Fill them with those kind of people who don't want to have their ears tickled. We pray for the fellow brethren at our sister churches and other pastor friends of mine that they be diligent in preaching the word in season and out of season that you strengthen their congregations through your word that their members not desire to heap upon themselves uh, teachers having itching ears Lord, bless all of our brothers this morning that are preaching the gospel, all of our sister churches and like-minded churches in, in this area, that they proclaim your truth unashamedly and unabashedly. And Father, I pray for the word this morning as we look at the second chapter of this book about the divine conspiracy that advances and, and focusing on uh, the fact that uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus as he's called in the text seeks to build a world without you and how Lord we will see through the text that that cannot work it is impossible to build a world without you and Lord as we look at this text may we examine our own lives and examine uh, this world and what the world is trying to do and come to an understanding that we cannot build a world without God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, fill me with your spirit to preach this word today. Give me wisdom from above as I preach. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate this text to us. Show us your truth, Lord. And may we be encouraged, may the saints be encouraged, and may sinners turn to you and be saved. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let us turn to Esther, the second chapter. The divine conspiracy 
continues. We continue to see the providence of God working things out. Hope you all had a chance to read this chapter. We already know where we're going to be every week, so uh, uh, we should. This book kind of reads like a soap opera a little bit, like a drama unfolding. I don't know if you all feel the same way about it, but it's, it, it's kind of like a drama that's unfolding. And here it continues, and this is the chapter where Esther becomes queen. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. Esther is not the hero of this story. She's not even the hero of this book. Uh, and we will see why And when I was doing my sermon prep at the track meet yesterday. So I guess I get points for that. Daryl, I get a big check by my name on that big refrigerator in the sky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, But I, I took everything with me yesterday because we had a four or five hour period where nothing was going on that I needed to pay attention to. So I had a chance to really dig in and, and look at some things and came to the conclusion. I didn't have this conclusion five years ago when I preached it, but uh, Esther is not a hero. She's not to be looked at as that anyway, just period. The only hero of the Bible is Jesus, uh, first and foremost, and we're going to see why. So we're going to read the text here, the second chapter. And this is where Esther becomes queen. Some of y'all Bible headings may say something to that effect. And it reads as follows. After these things, and um, I think about, some commentators say about a two-year or so period had, uh, had passed between the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the second chapter. You know, this, uh, we talked about this before. This is how historical narratives work. Everything doesn't happen in real time. So, so after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins in Susa, the citadel, to the women's quarters under the custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who pleases the king uh, be queen, rather, young woman, rather, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Susa, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured uh, with Jeconia, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, the king's, I'm sorry, his uncle's daughter. So they were first cousins, by the way. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegei, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care excuse me, of Hegei, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maid servants were provided for her from the king's palace, 
and he moved her into her maid servants rather move her and her maid servants to the best place in the house of the women Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it and every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her so each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulation for the women and thus were the days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months was perfume and preparations for beautifying women thus prepared each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace Ooh, just imagine that ladies take whatever you desire when you go shopping in the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. I said I didn't hear myself and I looked at my battery pack and the light was flashing red and I knew that something had gone wrong. I've done, I did that in the past early on when we used to record sermons where 
you preach a whole sermon and they realize that it wasn't recorded, uh, that's not good. <laughs> so, amen. So after reading that text, um, I want to open up with the thought that, you know, when we try to do things our way, many times we try to do that. And we see the king doing it in this passage. I often uh, quote something that I wrote, uh, I think last year, year before last, that when we try to build a world without God, it can't work. It won't work because it can't work. And this is the full quote, because uh, I wrote it on an index card, and it sits on my uh, the place where I do Bible study on my back porch. And it reads as follows. It says, when you try to build a world while at the same time denying the God who created it, you will fail. Despite all the technological advances and engineering ingenuity, a world devoid of God will only fail. It cannot work because it won't work. It will produce misery upon misery. And that is oh so true. That you try to build a world while at the same time denying the God who created the world, you're going to end up with misery. You're going to end up being miserable. How many people try to build their lives without worshiping God? And I say it all the time. Most people who are miserable in life are miserable because they're trying to build a world without God. They're trying to build a world while at the same time denying God. Denying the very God who created the world. Denying the very God who created them. It is a fool's errand. When we try to do things our way. And all of us are guilty of trying to do things our way. What happens? We what? We fail. We fail sometimes in the most spectacular of ways. Sometimes we fail in ways that people on the outside world cannot see. But we know in our hearts, man, we just, just messed up. Because we tried to do things our way. And that's what happens. And that's what we see in our text today. Ahasuerus in a drunken rage because his wife would not parade naked in front of uh, you know, all of his men that he had at, at his banquet. He banished his wife, Vashti. You know, said the edict was that she could not come before the king's presence anymore. He did that in a drunken rage. You know, he was drunk with wine. And now sometime later, maybe a year or two later, he's what? He's miserable. He's alone. He doesn't have a, a queen to, to do his bidding or to do whatever he says do. So now he finds himself in misery. He's already a godless man to begin with because he is a pagan as all Persian kings uh, were. They were idolaters. They did not worship the God of uh, Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So he was attempting to do that. And here we have him again in misery. So just as I did last week, just kind of recapping the author's purpose, the purpose of this book. We're going to always work through these as we go through this book, just as a reminder. Uh, the purpose of the author writing this book is to show God's hidden hand that it is still active in the lives of his people. One sentence message of the whole book is that God is actively involved in all human affairs in order to accomplish his sovereign providential plan of redemption of his people to his glory. That all things happen according to the counsel of his will. And what values does this book have for Christians today? We talked about these three things last week. The providence of God is one. That God uh, superintends or preserves creatures for his divine initiative. That all things happen at God's hand. You know, we gave a definition of providence uh, last week, a good working definition of it. Another value that we learned is human responsibility. Because Esther and Mordecai show great initiative and courage. Their actions will change the course of history for the Jewish people. And another value we see in here is the total depravity of man. And we see that in King Ahasuerus, as we're going to see in this chapter. And also uh, Haman, we're going to see that as we go through the book, that they both embodied evil. Because Ahasuerus was prideful and arrogant. And we talked about last week how arrogance is a grave sin too. Pride and arrogance are two very serious sins that we need to take seriously. And another value is that those whom God chooses are not perfect. Because Esther and Mordecai, as we're going to see, were not perfect. They were not sinless examples to follow. God used Esther and Mordecai even though Esther hid her Jewishness from Ahasuerus. She hid the fact that she was a Jew. We saw that in verse 10. That's, as I said in the beginning, Esther is not a hero. We're not to look at her as one. She hid her Jewish faith from the pagan king Ahasuerus. And she did it at the behest of Mordecai. Mordecai told her to hide it. And guess what? She did. And we see that as being uh, a sin in, in doing that. Was, was it such a big deal for her to hide it? Is it a big deal for us to hide our faith? Yes, it is. In order to gain a standing in the world or to fit in with the world, is it good to hide our faith to do that? No, but that's what Esther did. She hid her Jewish faith in order to gain a standing in the world. But God still chose her and her first cousin Mordecai to preserve the Jewish people. So what does God want to accomplish through the author? To assert that despite the apparent hidden nature of him, that he is working his purpose out. That he is presently active in the world. And that he works with human behavior to respond uh, and human responses to him. And that's what we're going to look at in our passage. So looking at some observations 
and uh, exposition of the text. We're going to look at three scenes in this book. Number one is the king's plan and attempt to make life work. So we see that in verses one through four. If you look at it again, it says that the king, apparently after some time, when his wrath had subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So man, <laughs> things kind of uh, open up to him that perhaps he made a grave mistake in doing that. So his servants came to him and, and, and tried to advise him. Now, I want to give a, a cultural context to uh, where we are in the world at this time in, in Persia. For one of my uh, commentaries here, uh, Ian Duguid wrote a commentary, an excellent expository commentary on Esther. And he says here, in the world of the Persians, everything anyone possessed, including one's body, could be and was claimed by the empire if the empire wanted it. In essence, in ancient Persia, no one belonged to themselves. There, were, there was no such thing as my body, my choice, as feminists in our nation proclaim today. The women could be chosen to be in the king's harem. And if they were chosen, guess what? They had to go. The men could be recruited and drafted to serve as the king's eunuchs. If it was felt that there was a need and they were qualified. And we, we talked last week about what happens to the eunuchs in order for them to become eunuchs. The king can see a young man, 18, 19 years old, tall and very handsome, and recruit him to be one of his eunuchs and to serve in the palace. And guess what? The young man has to oblige or off goes his head. That's the way it was in this context. So we see here in the opening part of this chapter as we work through this the, a, an attempt to, to make life work one of his servants told him let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king think about that sought for the king be, be searched out not let them come to him but let them be sought and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather like herd all the beautiful young virgins to Susa the Citadel. So appoint men from all your provinces, over 120, to find virgins to bring to the capital. But some of them had to traverse from a hundred hundreds of miles away. The edict had to go out first, which took time, and then took time for them to come back. So this was a long period of time that this took place. So they had to go out on a search mission to find these. Uh, virgins. So after his wrath at society, he remembered Vashti. And perhaps the king had sobered up 
And remember, man, I had a maid with this lady. But this indicated a ridiculous decision to get rid of her. But again, he made a decree. And remember, decrees could not be overturned. Once you made it, that's it. That's it. So his servants gave unsolicited counsel to the king. And guess what? He obliged. It says, let beauty preparations be made for them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so, so he obliged. And the thing about this that we see is that there were only three requirements that were needed for the queen. One, she had to be a virgin. Two, she had to be beautiful. And three, she had to be young. It says, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Those are only qualifications. This was basically a beauty contest that these women were going to have to perform. And this gave in to the idolatry that the Persians participated in. They worshipped the body. The human body was an object to worship. This is where idolatry, idolatry leads you. You begin, as Paul said in Romans 1, instead of worshiping the creator God, you begin to worship man. You begin to worship creation. And the Persians worshiped the human body. They worshiped beautiful young women. And that's who he wanted in his harem. So it was all about what? Outward looks. It was all about the outside. It was all about the world's standard of beauty. The world looks at what? The outside, outward appearances. But it reminds me of what God told the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel, I think 16 and 7, where he was looking for a king. And God told him that he does not see how man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but God looks where on the heart this shows the difference between this wicked pagan king and the true king God himself that God looks on the heart it is the heart of the person that matters not the so called outward beauty it's not that Beauty doesn't matter, but that is not the essence of a person. But the king, again, he's attempting to make life work by appealing to his pagan standards of beauty. And so with those standards, they sought from every province, again, which took considerable time and considerable resources. This is the ridiculousness of his quest to find a suitable replacement for Vashti. Think about all the mention of the preparations that they had to make. And they had to do it for a year. Let beauty preparations be given them. So the women had to prepare themselves on the outside prepare themselves for beautification 
to become his queen. They used precious oil. They used exfoliation. They did massaging. They did all those things to let you know that none of this stuff is new. Exfoliation of the skin, facials, all those things. This happened in antiquity. They just used very expensive oils to do it and spices. All to achieve a worldly standard of beauty. Why? Because the king is attempting to make life work without God. He's appealing to his small g pagan gods. The Greek historian uh, uh, Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC, uh, he wrote that Persian queens were normally selected from one of the seven noble families uh, in Persia, but this was not the case here because, again, Esther was Jewish. So she did not come from one of those noble families. But in almost all other cases, that's where they came from. So this is the first thing that we see here is he is appealing to the world's standard of beauty. And again, it reminds us of the quote that we read earlier. You try to build a world while at the same time denying the God who made it. Does God make beauty? Yes. God makes beauty. God, all of us are beautiful. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows well, says David in that song. God created beauty. But God did not create beauty to be an object of worship. God did not create beauty, beauty to be the essence of our existence as human beings. But that is what they did in the Persian kingdom. And that is what we see in our world. Where there's a worship of beauty. Which leads us to the second scene. This is the providential decision. That God uses sinful human decisions for his redemptive purposes. We see this in verses 5 through 18. And what do we see here? So after the advisors tell the king what to do and find the king, he says he's going to do it. And says there was a certain Jew named Mordecai. And we read where he was the first cousin of uh, Esther. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is uh, Esther. Okay. His uncle's daughter. But she had neither father nor mother. And that she was lovely and beautiful. And so it was the king's command and decree were heard. And many young women were gathered at Susa. The Esther was also taken to the king's palace and into the care of Hegei, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance and gave her seven maidservants to attend to her. Man, that's a lot if you just think about it. <laughs> Ladies, would you would y'all just okay, just just a little sidebar here. 
Ladies, would y'all like to have seven women serving you all's every need? No. Would you all like that? No. Girls, would y'all like that? Have have seven little little bratty girls attending to all y'all needs. Make sure you get your nails done and put your makeup on for you. Pick out your school clothes for you and make sure you get to school and back. Uh, ladies, y'all y'all would like that. So I want to you sit down in a makeup chair and someone does your makeup and gives you a massage. You know, does your you know, picks out your clothes, your wardrobe, go shopping for you. That, that doesn't sound uh, too tempting, ladies, okay? Okay, just, just asking. But, hey, these women had it made in the King's Palace, right? I mean, seven maidservants uh, were given to her. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So the Lord's grace was already upon her. But this was the problem. This was the sin. Uh, Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So God uses sinful human decisions for his redemptive purposes. You may look at it and say, oh, that's, that's not a bad thing for her uh, to do that. Now the author introduces Mordecai and his ethnic background and his relation to her as we see. We saw again that uh, Esther obtained favor of the king and how the women were chosen and Esther being chosen as queen. But during this process, Esther, like the other virgins, slept with the king. You see this in verse 15. It says here, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as daughter, to go into the king. That's what that means, that she went into him. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's uh, unit, the custodians of the women, advised. So Esther committed a sin, uh, like the other versions, by sleeping with the king. Now, you know, she could have made this compromise because she sees becoming the queen as vital and because of her desire to keep and honor Mordecai's instructions. But nevertheless, once she marries the king, she's breaking another Jewish law. And one of those laws God gave in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4. That they're not to marry foreigners because that will lead to worshiping their gods instead of Yahweh. Now, the text does not indicate that Esther had worshipped the foreign gods, you know, so she could have kept the essentials of her religion without compromising, but that still does not make it right. It was a sinful move, yet it was a providential move because her becoming king is what was going to play, I'm sorry, her becoming queen was going to play out in the uh, rest of the book and saving of God's people. But this goes back to make my point again, that God uses sinful human decisions for his glory. Now, that does not give us license to go out and make sinful decisions and say, okay, perhaps God will use us in this situation. No, that's not what that does. <laughs> okay, that's not a license. Okay, yeah, God does use our sinful decisions. No, that doesn't give us license to go out and just commit sins and, and, and somehow think that God is going to uh, bless that. 
No. So don't think that. In the doing says this in his commentary on this. He says Esther ended up married to an uncircumcised pagan and virtually cut off from the community of faith successfully pretending and I, I like the way he put this successfully pretending not to be a child of the true and living God. Was it possible completely to privatize one's faith as an exile to be a faithful believer in private but never let it show in any outward way during the five years of life in the king's harem? Surely not. Her enviable progress in one world the world of the empire of Ahasuerus came at the cost of completely suppressing her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that, I agree with that, uh, look at this. That what she did was sinful. That's why we can't look at her as a hero. This is not to defame Esther's name, but it's to show that all of our heroes in scripture are what? They're sinners. They're flawed people. They committed sin. Even Abraham committed sin. And his wife Sarah did by giving uh, him her handmaid. Um, what was her name? It just slipped my mind just like that. I'll, I'll just, Hagar. Hagar, her handmaid. Abraham sinned by sleeping with her. And Sarah sinned by giving Hagar to her because she couldn't have children at that time. But God still fulfilled his promise despite his sin. And we see this in this text here that God's providential plan in the life of the Jewish people in the life of Esther did not stop because of her sin. God uses sinful people despite their sin not because of it and that's what we see here the fact that she she uh, went in to the king but it was still a very providential move because that in essence uh, sealed the deal of her becoming queen but again it causes us to not look at our biblical heroes without looking at them as being sinners but God still uses them. Paul himself said that of himself, that this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am foremost, of whom I am chief. He said that of himself. And I think I sent that text out yesterday to y'all that God is sovereign even over those sinful choices and wasted opportunities. And he is. And he's sovereign over this sinful choice that Esther made and Mordecai. And the wasted opportunity to be a witness to Ahasuerus to the true and living God and the faith of the true and living God. Now let's bring this down to our context. Do we hide our Christian faith in the midst of our pagan unbelieving co-workers that's something for us to think about do, do we hide the fact that we are a believer in the one true God and the only true God 
Do we hide that fact from our co-workers? Do we hide it from our family members? Do we hide it from our friends? You know, some can act one way in, in front of their church family, and then when they get in front of their real family, boy, they let it all hang out. They let loose. What church you go to again? Who is your pastor? <laughs> you know, we're one way in church and we're another way at work. There's no Christian witness at work. There's no Christian witness at, at school with our peers. Do we try to hide our Christian faith? When Jesus tells us, he told us in Matthew the fifth chapter that we're not to hide our light under a bushel. What did he tell us in Matthew 5? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Your good works comes from your faith that you have in Christ, your belief in Christ. It's not the good works that save you. You're saved to do good works, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.10. There we are, his workmanship, creating God for good works. So Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. People are to see the good works of our faith, the fruit of our faith. It doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, but we will do it nonetheless. Don't be an Esther. <laughs> okay. People say, dare to be an Esther. I, I remember that thing was going through. Uh, there was a, a song called Take Me to the King or something like that. And it was all about Esther. Uh, you know, it was, it was a movie ab about her, you know. Uh, I remember that whole little trend, dare to be an Esther. Uh, no, we would hardly coin that phrase <laughs> at this part of the story. Dare to be like Jesus. Dare to be like him is the person we all should be pointing to. So we see that despite her sinful choice, that God is going to do what? He's going to use that to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And the last scene we see in this chapter is a providential discovery. Mordecai discovers a conspiracy. A conspiracy of conspiracies. So while he's pacing back and forth, wondering what's going on, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai providentially sat within uh, the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family again or her people just as Mordecai had charged her for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai when she was brought up by him. In those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs Victim and Teresh, they were doorkeepers they became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So they were probably just gossiping and just running their mouth, talking about how, how they wanted to lay hands on the king. So the matter <laughs> became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So in other words, she came to Ahasuerus and said, Mordecai told me, or Mordecai heard you know, your two eunuchs conspiring against you. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. Did y'all say this? Yes, we did. 
And both men were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That is key. We're going to see this later on in the book. Those who know it, you're going to, this is all providential. This is a providential. It's, it's, it's amazing how it's going to play out later on in the book. But this didn't happen by, this wasn't just a stroke of good luck. No, this was the providence of God at work. This discovery by Mordecai was providential. And the fact that it was written in the Chronicles in the presence of the king is going to come into play some years uh, later. These verses foreshadow uh, the forthcoming events that would change the course of this narrative in favor of God's people. That's what we see. Now, Mordecai was in an official role in the king's court because he could roam around the king's gate because everyone wasn't able to do that. So obviously Mordecai was some important person in the king's court. So it was all providential. It was by sheer providence that he was told about the conspiracy against the king. Now, it was not uncommon for conspiracies like this to take place because eventually Ahasuerus fell victim to such a plot. Kings during that time were always, you know, they were despots, despots they were uh, tyrants, so they always had their life at risk. There were always people trying to kill them. It was a very insecure life that these kings uh, lived. Very insecure lives. Now, neither Esther nor Mordecai were rewarded for falling this plot. You know, it just happened that uh, it was revealed, but they were not rewarded at all. They were not thanked for that. Mordecai probably spent weeks and months waiting in vain for some token of appreciation for saving the king's life. But this king is a pagan. Persian kings fail to reward faithful service, but guess what? We have a God who does. God is never negligent in rewarding faithful servants. This is how this king is not like God. He is a wicked king. He doesn't reward faithful service. I'm sure Mordecai wasn't necessarily looking for it, but he should have thanked him for doing that, for saving his life, but he didn't. But God is a faithful king who rewards faithful service. So the Hebrew here in verse 23 uh, indicates that the two conspirators were impaled. And I'm going to tell you how, uh, not in graphic detail, but before the cross, there was impaling. And impaling was a prelude to the cross. It was the Greeks who uh, perfected the impalement and uh, made crosses. And then, I'm sorry, the Greeks started the crucifixion and the Romans perfected it. Because the crucifixion was a form of punishment. But before the cross, people were impaled. And I'm sure you all know what the word impaled means. They were not crucified or hung on a rope. Impalement was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. Okay? And it was not necessarily how they were killed. They were mostly killed beforehand and then their bodies impaled. 
and put on display. They would drive a long stake through their body so that the body could be hung in the air for display to send a message. You want to betray the king? This is what's going to happen to you. I think that would scare me. But it didn't because men are what? Sinners. <laughs> okay. You can do that all you want to. And guess what? Some people are still going to hate the king because he impaled two people. And that's what crucifixion was. The, the, during crucifixion, those criminals were hung on those crosses and they stayed up for days. Sometimes until family members got them down and if nobody came to claim their bodies, they stayed up on the cross and their corpses rotted and were eaten up by, you know, just whatever, all kinds of unimaginable things that you think uh, desecrate the human body. But the impalement, so they were, they were not hanged. The Hebrew uh, means that they were impaled. Sometimes while alive and sometimes they were dead first. I'm sure being alive was very excruciating to be impaled uh, with, the, with the pole. And I'm sure that pole wasn't nice and smooth. Even if so, it still wouldn't matter. It's still a very painful process. But anyway, this is what happens to them when they betray the king. But the overall point of this scene is to point to the fact that Mordecai's discovery was providential. He didn't just happen to be at the king's gate. No, he was there at that specific time for God's purpose. And we're going to see that play out later on in this book. Amen. So we're going to answer four questions here, theological questions and implications. Number one, how is God working his purpose out? It is his choosing of Esther. His choosing of Esther is God working his plans out by having her chosen. Because any other king could have been chosen. But rather God chose Esther. And this points and reminds me of the doctrine of election that God sovereignly chooses people for his glory. And this is simply how the Persian Empire worked. Some people were chosen and some will be left behind. Esther was one of those that was taken. So it was God working his purpose of redemption out. Number two, how is God actively involved in the world in this chapter? One of the things we see is the consequences of disobedience. If you think about this, how did the nation of Israel end up where they are? The first lesson that this chapter verse teaches us is that disobedience and sin and the sins of others can have far-reaching consequences. It wasn't Esther's fault that they were here. It wasn't Mordecai's fault. It was the fault of their fathers, their, their, their parents. Why were they living in Susa? It was because of the sins of their forefathers who did what? Sinned against God that brought them into exile in the first place. 
And then also, after the exile was over, not all of the Jews came back to Jerusalem. But some of them remained in Babylon. Among them were Esther and Mordecai's family. They remained in Babylon. They did not come back to Jerusalem, or else this story wouldn't have even taken place. So the families of Esther and the family of Mordecai, they remained in Babylon. They remained in the exile with those who got comfortable in that world. So the destruction of Jerusalem, when the Babylons came years uh, later, or before rather, it was not an accident of fate. It was a culmination of judgment against God upon his own people who had abandoned him. That's what brought on the exile. But again, when the exile was over, some people came back with Zerubbabel and Ezra, the first and second chapter as we, as we looked at. But some of them still lived in Susa because Susa seemed like a better place to make progress and advance in the service of the empire as opposed to going back to a broken down, torn down city to rebuild it. Some of them didn't want to do that. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem because it was in ruins. The wall was torn down. The temple was gone. The city had lay in ruins. All their homes were destroyed. So they were living comfortably in Babylon, in Susa. And again, had Mordecai and Esther returned to Jerusalem, most likely we wouldn't be reading this story right now. But the result of their family's history of disobedience still worked in God's plan because Esther and Mordecai happened to be, by God's providence, in Susa, and Esther was chosen as king, and Mordecai was, was chosen to guard the king's gate. Even the consequences of sin can be providential. And we see that in this, this chapter, that God is present active in this world, even with the sins of their forefathers, he's still active. Man, that amazes me. Thirdly, how is God working with human behavior? Again, I talked about this earlier that Esther is not a hero. Esther is not the hero. Jesus is. Jesus is the hero because Esther was not perfect. But again, God still worked with her sinful choice in order to make her queen, which will, which will eventually uh, preserve his people. We see God's ability to turn our disobedience to his own glory and for his people's good. Doesn't that speak well of the character of God? That he takes, you know, when we, when we talk to people, evangelize them, many people think that they have to be perfect to come to God they don't remember people can't get themselves together we, people can't reconcile themselves to God they can only be reconciled to God through Christ they have to know that you're a sinner you tell them hey I'm a great sinner 
But Jesus is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner. But God still uses me for his glory despite my sin. That is a great gospel testimony. So we don't want to send a message out to people that are unsaved that you somehow have to be perfect. That you somehow have to have some type of standing before man before you can come from God. No, it is God who saves you. It is God who cleans you up. It is God who makes you acceptable unto himself through Jesus Christ. God does the cleaning up, not us. God uses us despite our sin. And how is God protecting and saving his people? Again, we see that in Mordecai. Timing is everything in God's work of providence. I mean, it is. Timing is everything. Mordecai was milling around the king's gate wondering what was happening to Esther. And then before you know it, it word got to him that two men were plotting against the king. That's how God is protecting and saving his people by using his providential timing to accomplish that. You know what this tells me and should tell us? There's nothing meaningless about our life before God. There's nothing meaningless about your life, Christian. Your times are in God's hands. Your days are in God's hands. Because of God, your life has purpose. And that purpose is to bring him glory. Young children, your life has purpose. Don't think that it does. Don't think that you have to wait to become an adult to have purpose. No, your life has purpose right now. Whether you're retired or whether you're working, your life has a divine purpose. God is using you. It may not be anything that garners headlines or garners the world's attention, but God is using you. I remember uh, it was a few Saturdays ago when I was at work in in Oxford at, at, the, at the branch there was a young man who came in to open up a checking account and I taught him in middle school and uh, his girlfriend was with him who I taught in high school Anderson High School and uh, you know I haven't seen him since since what he was in 7th grade that was like in 2003 you know caught up with him asked him how he's doing blah 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 you know he said he, said he had 7 kids I'm like man Come on now. You know, but anyway, not by the same. He's not like he's married and has seven kids. But the girl that he's with, they've been, uh, they have two kids together. And they have been, quote, living together for 10 years. And the very first word that popped out of my mouth, because I don't have good tact. I'm not very winsome. Perhaps that's a weakness of mine. I said, why aren't you all married? That's the first question I asked. I said, well, I just said, I said, why ain't y'all married? Why don't y'all get married? And she hit him and said, I told you, Mr. Hager, I've been talking to him about that and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, I said, I don't want to call his name. I said, 
you better marry this girl. Now my pastor didn't talk to me about it and everything, blah, 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 blah. I said, you better marry this girl. I said, y'all are living in sin. And I know I'm saying, I didn't grow up like that. You know, my, my grandparents didn't teach me that, you know. And I said, look, it's not about how you grew up. I said, a lot of people that, that, that I hear that are living in sin will tell you that they grew up going to church. But I said, that doesn't make you saved. It doesn't. <laughs> you know, just because you, you were taught that, I mean, it's fine. But you still need regeneration. You still need a new birth. You know, but I said, yeah, I know. Because, you know, they were my school parents, some of my favorite ones, her parents and grandparents, very godly people. But I said, look, you can't live out the legacy of what you were taught by your, by your grandparents. I said, you all are living in sin. I said, I said it very lovely because I have good, like I said, I talk to them. I have good equity with them. I can say that to them. But I said, y'all are living in sin. I said, y'all need to get married. And it just kind of went on from there. But I just came out and said it. Why? Because in that moment, I knew that I could say that to them. And in and, and banking, you can't talk about stuff like that. You can't. But I knew I could say that to them because I knew them. And they knew me. And they liked me and everything as a teacher and stuff. So so I, I had that it, with them. So I could I could preach the gospel to them. Exactly. That was providential. Exactly. So thanks for making the point of my sermon. I appreciate that, uh, of this point. And, and God, in that moment, providentially, they... Uh, came to the branch for him to open an account and I took advantage of that gospel opportunity I was in the right place at the right time because of God's timing same thing with Mordecai Mordecai God had him there at that time for that moment to be told that those two men had their plot to kill the king that wasn't just by chance that was God's perfect time and that was going to as again that's going to play later on in this book that it was written down in the Chronicles of the King. That's spoiler alert. The king's going to remember that. Oh, I remember him. It was like five years later or something like that. But that shows us, all of us, God has you right where he wants you providentially to proclaim the gospel, to bring him glory, and perhaps to lead someone to salvation, you never, ever know. Amen? So applications here as we close out. Number one, don't underestimate God. Don't underestimate God. There's nothing that God can't do. Is anything too hard for God? No. Jeremiah said that in Jeremiah 17, nothing it's too difficult for thee. Great and mighty God, great in power, and mighty indeed, the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed. Nothing is too difficult for God. What did God tell Abraham? Is there anything too hard for God? No. Don't underestimate God. Don't underestimate the power of God's gospel. Don't underestimate the power of God working in your life. Don't underestimate, underestimate the power of God using you, sinner, saved by grace. Don't underestimate that. Number two, don't overestimate pagan power. The devil can only do so much. 
remember the devil is God's devil he can only do what God allows him to do Satan is not all powerful all omnipotent he is not he's not don't overestimate pagan power don't underestimate the unbelievers on your job that, that breathe out all these evil things about Christianity and about the church don't be afraid of them don't be afraid of godless people they're mere men they put their pants on as the saying goes one leg at a time just like you they don't just say open sesame and boom they're dressed just like that no they are like you they the Bible says what all flesh is as grass and that includes pagans unbelievers kids don't be afraid of these kids at school they can't do nothing to you. They can't harm you. Don't be afraid of these kids at school. They can do nothing to you. They can't lay a hand on you. Why? Because they're not greater than your God. They're not. A lot of people are ensnared by the fear of man. The Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. They worry about the thoughts and the opinions of, of people. But you know what? I don't care. I'm going to speak God's truth. I'm going to live it. I'm going to do it in love, but I'm still going to do it. Like my old folks you say, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the truth. Because <laughs> I'm going to speak the truth, and we have to live it. We cannot overestimate pagan power. God even uses his worst enemies to serve his great purposes. And number three, don't underestimate our kingdom significance. God uses his weakest servants for his greatest works. That reminds me of the words of Christ that he told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that that great thorn in the flesh that Paul had and, and he prayed the Lord three times for it to be moved but the Lord told him my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness and Paul learned that when I am weak that he is strong when we're at our weakest guess what God is at his strongest that is the kingdom of God Do not estimate our kingdom significance. God uses us weaklings for his greatest works. Amen. May the word of God encourage us. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are a great king, unlike Ahasuerus. Lord, your claims on our life are absolute. You own our bodies. You own our career plans. You own our hopes. You own our dreams. You own our children. You own everything that we have and everything that we are. Lord, you are sovereign over our beings. You are providence. You exercise your providence over all of our lives. Lord, you're not a tyrant like a Hasserus. 
who treat people as commodities, as disposable for consumption, who treats women like objects, who treats his servants like little minions. Lord, we thank you that you are a greater king. You are a greater king than Ahasuerus. Lord, you superintend all of our life. You are over all of our affairs. And Lord, we, we thank you that we can trust in you because you are in total control of everything that happens to us and everything that happens with us. Lord, help us to trust you, to trust in your word, to trust in your power, to not underestimate you, and to not give too much estimation to pagans. And Lord, help us to not underestimate our significance in your kingdom that we have a kingdom purpose that you have called us to. And help us, Father, to live that purpose out uh, no matter what may come, despite what may come. Help us, Father, to live out that purpose. Thank you, Lord, for working in our lives. And we pray that you continue to do so. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.